chew on these wise words. The Lunch Bite on SAFM. This is an anonymous quote, but it says, Decisions are the hardest thing to make, especially when it is a choice between where you should be and where you want to be. The fight against cancer begins with creating awareness. SAFM, supporting the fight against breast cancer. Now, Dr. Salome Van Koller-Peter is an executive coach and program head of the MTOL in Management Coaching Program at the University of Stellenbosch Business School. And she joins me now on the phone to talk to us about how to make a difficult decision. Dr. Salome Van Koller-Peter, hello, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm so honored to be on your program. Well, I always listen in and I'm amazed by your uh, the variety of topics that you hold so well, well so thank it's, you. it's an honor for me thank Just call you me salome please okay salome happy birthday hey <laughs> oh how did you know <laughs> listen i've got my, my i've got my people out there that tell me oh. what goes on happy oh. birthday and I'm, I'm i'm so glad you could give us some time on your birthday because i'm Absolutely. sure you're celebrating with good friends was it a difficult decision to make should i be on radio <laughs> on on my birthday no, no. When it comes to uh, work and anything that could market, um, you know, the USB mm-hmm. to students or potential students, I, I always say yes. Okay, okay. That's that's how dedicated you are. Now, a lot of us, and I think it happens every night, we go to bed wondering if we did well mm-hmm. and how we're going to do the following day. And if you should accept that raise or maybe move and change jobs, should you move home and should you let your children leave home without, you know, you as a parent anymore? How, how, how do we successfully make decisions, especially decisions that will um, have a long-lasting effect on our lives? Hmm. Shadow, um, what I really was asked to do is to write an article, of course, about decision-making process that works for me. So... Firstly, I just want to say this might not be everyone's cup of tea. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that I developed over the years and so on. But personally for me, I would like to stand back. I've learned that if I take a decision in the moment when I'm very emotional uh, and very shocked or very excited, it's not the best decision because then I take it with my heart. Mm. So personally, I have learned to take a step back and ask myself, What are the implications of this decision? Is it something I can do relatively quickly? Do I have enough know-how and data to my disposal to say, yes, I can comfortably make this decision? Hmm. Or is it something I need to spend time on? Is it going to affect my long-term or anybody else in my family or my community, which probably warrants more time being spent on researching your options and so on? So... Because I'm an extrovert, I'm, you know, can be very excited soon about stuff. <laughs> and I lend my ears out often and I've learned to just cope with it by taking quiet time and making sense of my emotions and saying, is this, does this warrant also that I do research on the matter before I actually spend unnecessary time making, you know, uh, gathering too much data and prolonging the decision. And at the same time, if it's something that warrants that time, it keeps me from, from making the very first decision that comes in my head. Mm. Do you know when you say stand back, and some, some of us stand back and stay back, 
<laughs> you don't <laughs> you don't eventually get to making because collecting data also needs time. You need to be able to sit all by yourself and ask yourself the pertinent questions and what implications, as you said earlier. But how much time? There must be a deadline somewhere. You can't take too long, especially if your decision will impact on other people. So, so you know, is is there a kind of a minimum and maximum time for for this research of data finding and and that yeah, sort of thing? Absolutely, very good question. Um, when certain decisions we know have an impact, we know that by tomorrow we need, really need to decide on that house because they've got another offer, mm-hmm. or by work in the work situation, this is my deadline for reporting back on such and such. I think generally people know there are deadlines. Um, what they need to then ask themselves also, sometimes procrastinators mm-hmm. struggle with this yes. because they never think they have enough data to make a decision on. Um, and there is, it's just, it's just life that sometimes you have to make a decision with what's, what you've got available in terms of your facts, in terms of research, and in terms of your experience. Mm-hmm. And you just have to go with it. And, you know, maybe you look back two weeks later and you say, oh, you know, this was really not the best decision. Mm-hmm. But at the time when you made it, just make sure you are taking everything into account. And be happy with that because we can always, always say, oh, I should have done this or that. But we can't live in the past. Yes. We need to actually say, Right now, this is the best decision I can take under the circumstance. I'm taking it, and I'm taking the, the responsibility that goes with that. So, Lomi, as you take time out again to do your research, are you doing it by yourself? Uh, do you have to consider other, uh, other traits and, and maybe some of your history as the past decisions mm. you have made and how those have worked out to inform yes. this decision? And are you talking to loved ones around you? Are you talking mm. to people that will be affected absolutely but again being an extrovert and getting my energy from others mm-hmm. I would in the past when I didn't think so clearly about decision making I've made a lot of mistakes I, I would lend my ears out I would listen more to what others are thinking and mm-hmm. saying and then you know I've learned to say that's great but I need to park that. I need to first work with what Salome thinks. Hmm. What comes up for her as experience? What comes up for her as emotions? And then how do I balance that with facts so that I take all three in account? Hmm. You know? Hmm. Um, and then now I've learned, and that's also involving these steps that I wrote down, then I go out once I know this is my first, second, and third option, and then I speak to others that I trust that has gone through a similar situation, that I know have good judgment, and then I sort of just get their perspective, and I come home again quietly, and I say, fine and well, wonderful stuff I've heard, which of that informs my decision, mm. um, and and then take the final decision. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, I want to know if the same would apply for all difficult decisions, or are there is there a grouping of decisions, for instance, mm-hmm. deciding whether you want to get married? That's a long-term decision. Yeah. Deciding whether to buy that very expensive shoe because you just mm-hmm. had a, a raise at, at, at work. That's a different decision depending on whether you're a male or female. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, there, is, is there 
a, a grouping of the different types, long-term, short-term decisions, mm-hmm. and maybe um, just what to eat in a restaurant, what decision to yeah. make, you know. So, I'm going to ask you the coaching question. What do you think, Twala? <laughs> well, I think, I, I, I think it, you know, deciding what to eat and deciding whether to buy a shoe or not can be an easier, not a life-changing decision as opposed to a, a long-term decision uh, if, you, if you have a, 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 a long-term illness. For instance, it's Cancer Awareness Month. We've been talking about cancer. Whether, whether to, mm-hmm. to go for chemotherapy or to go without because of the mm-hmm. consequences. Yes. So, you know, I think you may need to apply different formats to the type of decision. Okay. I like that. Oh, um, okay. I think for when I work with individuals, when they have to make a decision, I very much have to focus and see the world through, through their eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't impose my decision-making steps on anybody. I mean, okay. unless I totally understand their context, what makes them happy, or what are they fearful about, what have they experienced in their life, and where they are moving to. Mm-hmm. If I don't know my client well, and I don't see the world through his eyes. It's, it's hard. You know, I'm not doing him a favor by coaching him. Mm. And because everyone, as you well, you know, said it now, sees, not everyone sees a difficult decision like we see a difficult decision. Mm. Mm. But for me, if I can just maybe draw some parallels uh, with the people I work with, the mm. decisions that are difficult are often the ones that, includes others, that has an impact Mm -hmm. on others and that can be influenced by others. And those others are always the precious ones in our lives. It can also be, if it's work-related, something that carries a high risk of me losing my job or losing face or whatever I consider a big risk. Mm -hmm. And so it's very much an individual thing. but. I agree with you. Those those decisions that have far-reaching effects and that affect others are quite often more difficult for people to take because it's not just their own thinking that comes into play. Mm. There's, a, there's a step that you call the decision matrix analysis. Mm. Can you explain that? Mm. I created this when especially I work with very emotional people and people who... Um, Follow their, their gut, which is good. Your gut is collectively all your experiences in life, so they must, that must be worth something. Mm-hmm. But it makes you just sit back and take almost a very clinical, hard look at the facts. Um, it also brings into play your priorities in life and maybe your, the value you attach to things. So, mm-hmm. Taking an example in the article, I just want to explain that further. Let's say one wants to move to a new place. Mm. Everyone's criteria for the new house might be different. So for me, for instance, I could think of six criteria coming up for me. That's the location, mm-hmm. the value for money, yes. the proximity to schools and church or wherever we, we as a family hang out, mm-hmm. Um Space, whether the house allows for us to do what we want to do inside, and safety. But, but when I look through my eyes and my lenses at the decision, I rate some of them higher than others. So I give them weights. I've learned to give the criteria that is 
more key in my decision, some higher weights than the others. So I would, for instance, say uh, safety is really important for me. I give that a weight of, of four. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And proximity to, you know, with all the traveling one does nowadays, proximity to the things that you like doing as a family, for me, is is just less important than the safety. So I give it a three. Mm-hmm. Value for money is a two, location is a two, and space might be a three. So I almost ask myself which of these criteria are weighs heavier on in my mind than others. Okay. Because you, they, it can't, they can't all count the same. It just doesn't work that way. And then I compare my alternatives. I go and look for the house. I, I rate every house according to those six criteria. Mm-hmm. But I, the weights help because it almost brings your experience and your values into gear here. You're not just thinking clinically. You also say what's more important for us as a family um, that has our unique needs and our unique values. Um, Yeah, and so you can trust then that when you come to a decision, you certainly take most things into account. Now, out of all of those calculations, Salome, you've you've sat down, you've done your research, and mm-hmm. you've you've uh, you've understood your implications, and you've made the calculations, and you're quite comfortable that this is the right decision to make, and you make it, and uh, six months down the line, mm-hmm. it's not the right mm-hmm. decision, mm-hmm. or it does not feel comfortable anymore. Yes. Do you go back and do the same exercise until um, you find something that's possible, most comfortable? I, yeah, if I can change my decision without too much risk or cost, I will do it. But if it's crucial that we, instead of hitting ourselves over the head and saying, man, I was so stupid to make this decision, yeah. we need to, if we've done the homework, we need to trust ourselves that we've made the best decision possible at the time but we need to learn from that. So later, if we are sorry or we, it came to light that maybe our priorities were not well calculated or we've learned something new, just revisit, just revisit mm. uh, the weights you give to something and let that inform your next decision. Which may be better because by now you probably understand yourself better emotionally and you understand your feelings and I I suppose you need to work with your feelings a lot if it makes you feel woozy inside and it means you're in love with it and it's it's the kind of thing you want to do and if you're still feeling slightly uncomfortable because if you're in touch with yourself you'll know that then maybe go back to the drawing board yeah if you can retake the decision but if you can't just learn from it for the next big decision and and you mentioned something so crucial earlier. Some people stand back and they never come forward again. Yes, yes. Um, especially people who are not decisive and who do procrastinate, and also people who don't trust their own their own um, intuition. Maybe the self-esteem is not there that I mm. am, that can make good decisions. Then they never really implement this, the decision. They go around re-looking, re-evaluating, and that takes a lot of energy and time. So I would almost say, trust when you've done all this homework. You, you, you know, trust yourself. Make the decision. Take the action. Commit. Commit and and honor your decision. Because mm. in that way, um, you learn to trust your own decision-making capability. 
Now, Salome, this is not only for for just individuals, but I, I can see these steps helping somebody in, in a work situation. Absolutely. I can see somebody, in a parent, for instance, yes. who needs to make decisions and keep to them so that, oh. you know, the, the children also learn from them. So who really comes and learns from your, who, who do you coach and how do people get hold of you for coaching? Mm. Um, well, my number one job is to manage a coaching master's at the University of Stellenbosch Business School. So a lot of students, my students are usually very mature, anything between 28 and 62, wow. who wants to learn coaching skills because they have had a rich career and uh, or they want to make a transition into an own business. Mm-hmm. So they come from all disciplines. From IT to um, education to psychology to financial world. Mm, mm. And they all help others to make wonderful decisions. Um, I, think, I think what coaching does is that it helps your client get in contact with their own resourcefulness. Mm, mm, it's mm. not like mentoring you telling someone to do. No, you help them, to, you facilitate them to dig deeper and to find their own possibility mm. and to make their own decisions and to, you know, to just trust themselves more, to be happier. And that's, that's really, I coach, I coach mostly executives, but I love coaching teams also because often teams are not on the same page with regards to what their values look like and how they walk those values. Mm. And, but, but let's identify, though, you know, and I, I ask you this question because you deal mm. with such a diverse group of people. Mm. What are the things that stand out mostly that, um, that stop us or that make us procrastinate? Mm. Is, it, is it past mistakes or that we've done as far as making decisions? Uh, we have a fear of just committing. What stands out mostly? I think being in touch with oneself being aware of what your tendencies are. Mm. Are you the kind of person who are more emotional? You're the kind of person who's so logical that you forget about others' emotions. And just to reflect a lot about decisions made in the past, the effect of them, and what, how you want to change the way you look at critical decisions. Mm. I think yeah, people are often not in touch with themselves. And they're not aware of their thinking patterns. And that's what helps a lot through coaching is as they voice, as they voice things that come up for them, they also learn about how they think. Do you know? Um, yes. Yeah. That, that is the beauty of it really. You are a thinking partner to your client. You help them to get the best out of themselves. And you just provide a very confidential safe space. With which you know, in which they can admit to their fears. Um, often, senior people in business, you know, are anxious. They have to look brave in the boardroom, but quite frankly, it's a lonely place. The mm-hmm. more, the higher you go, the lonelier it is, because you can't very well, uh, or maybe not everyone's comfortable by saying, "Guys, you know what? I'm quite anxious about this decision." Um, Sure, it's a big thing for me. Or I'm a bit lonely right now, you know, my kids are out of the home. and So it, it helps, it gives the person a space to be vulnerable without being judged. You know, Dr. Salome, again, I, I want to know, and I, from an academic mm-hmm. like yourself, you know, why is it getting more 
important now to mm-hmm. understand ourselves as individuals yeah. after having, you know, people have gone to school, have studied. Mm-hmm. Uh, could, could we not have encouraged people to uh, kind of do a bit of humanities in order not to require these skills mm-hmm. when you've acquired everything else? You find that you still cannot be good at your, at, at your craft and your skill yeah. As, as a, as a yeah. qualified academic, you yeah. still need to, to be coached to, to find yourself again or undo what you've learned over the years to be in touch with yourself. Yeah. There are a lot of programs about that. And I, I do a lot of, I talk to a lot of people and after the show, mm-hmm. we're talking to somebody as well. But, uh, couldn't it be done now that we know it's a necessary, uh, yeah. skill to have? Yes. Couldn't it be introduced earlier well, in education? Absolutely, Shadow. I, we were in Sweden for three years when my daughter started primary school. When she came back, we put her in a small little um, semi-private school because she was used to small classes. Um, and they learned them scrapbooking. They taught them scrapbooking, and every Friday they would take two hours in the class, and they would scrapbook about the week. They could use their pictures, and they could take pictures, but they had to be very quiet in class. And I've, I've seen my daughter's reflective skills greatly being enhanced at a very early age because mm. of, this is like journaling, like right? it's like making sense of your week. Yes. It's putting it on paper, not just keeping it in your head. There's something about a pen and paper and color that um, is just so good when we reflect. And so, so the reflective part of teaching to me is missing in school, mm. that making sense of what happened now uh, let me go think about that. Let me have time to contemplate before mm. I have to come up with an answer. Mm. We just spoke. I had my own coaching session earlier today, and I'm a very visual learner, and we, we just talked about schooling. I remember clearly I would uh, close my eyes, and I need to – that's when I best think because I saw pictures rather than words. Mm. And you know, then the teacher would say, open your eyes. Are you <laughs> sleeping or what? And she was doing me this favor because I learned differently from, from other kids. And I think teaching, teachers need a, a whole lot of, a big piece of education about right brain kids and left brain kids, how they learn so that they can accommodate both in the classroom. And they definitely need to leave time for reflection. Because it's then that the kids make sense of, of their learning. Reflection and storytelling. Absolutely. And, and storytelling. Same at universities. Mm-hmm. At our business school, the reflective journal is a part of every program. Students need to hand that in as their final assignment that puts the cherry on the cake. Mm. And it's amazing how they don't just learn to do but to be well. a different person. Dr. Salome von Koller, Peter, thank you so much for talking to us on your birthday. Hey, and I hope, and I hope, what a privilege for me. And thank I hope you. it's a day that will also, where you'll find time to reflect on, on, on your new dreams, because it's the yes. beginning of a new chapter for you on yeah. your birthday. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Shadow. And your, your, we may contact you at the, at the business school. Yes, yes, you may. Is, is there a website? There is, um, I'll give you uh, my email address. Yes, please. It is um, salome.funcaller yes. 
The capital S and a capital C. Okay. You no, know, so the van is small letters. Yeah. At USB. Mm-hmm. AC. Mm-hmm. ZA. Fantastic. Thank you so much, and you take care. Pleasure. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, Dr. Salome van Kala-Peter at University of Stellenbosch Business School. When we come back, have you ever heard of Enneagram? Well, apparently, it's a system that uh, can be used to type nine different personalities. We talk about that after this. It is now time for news headlines with Ms. Nom Samjuli. Thanks, Shadow. In the headlines, the FIFA has confirmed that it has suspended President Sablata, Secretary General Jerome Falke, and UEFA head Michel Platini for all football activities for 90 days. The DA has welcomed the Supreme Court of Appeal ruling after it dismissed with costs an application by SABC COO Saudi Muzuning, the broadcaster and the communications minister, that appealed against the High Court ruling that Muzuning be suspended and disciplinary action be taken against him, as recommended by public protector Tulima Donzela. And more than 500 DA members have gathered outside the ANC's investment wing Chancellor House in Santon, north of Johannesburg. This follows the World Bank's confirmation that it would investigate the alleged corruption surrounding Hitachi and Chancellor House. More on these and other stories at 2. 105.1, the home of SAFM in Johannesburg. Johannesburg. SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. Otherwise, with Shadow Twala, putting the ladies in the limelight. Putting the ladies in the limelight. Well, and my guest is Anne Gad, who's an author of 16 books, well-known artist, Reiki master, and art workshop facilitator, who's been studying the Enneagram, and I hope I pronounce it correctly, for eight years, during which time she's been privileged to learn from local and internationally acclaimed teachers and authors. Anne Gad, welcome. Hello. Hello, hi. Hi, thank you for your time. It's my pleasure. I'm excited to know that you're a Reiki master. Um, well, you know, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm there. I don't really know what to say. I know you expected to, for us to go straight into Enneagram. I was. <laughs> sorry, sorry then. Um, no problem. I, I wasn't sure whether it's, is it pronounced Enneagram? That's correct, yes, so you're correct. What are we talking about? At its most basic level, in other words, the way it's used in the workplace and in business, it's a personality profiling system. But where it differs from the majority of personality profiling systems is that it was never meant to be only that. It was simply meant to become, in becoming aware of who we were and our blind spots, it then allows us to actually bring what is in our shadow out into the light, work with that, and become more integrated whole people. So to put it very briefly, um, Russ Hudson, who is both a teacher and um, co-author of many of the books, it's a path to presence. You know, we always hear people say, you've got to live in the now. Well, we can't really live in the now if we're kind of worrying about what's going to happen in the future or feeling guilty about what's happened in the past. So, no, now I'm confused. I've been working so hard to live in the now. <laughs> and you're telling but, me but, I can't but, do that. Yeah, but you see, you could take it. You could take it like this. Like, let's say the now. I mean, I'm I'm speaking quite broadly, artistically. But if the now was white light, all right, that is when you're totally present in the now. And 
everything that deviated from that, a bit like putting a light through a prism, becomes a rainbow of different colors. Okay. Then each one of the personality types would be a different color of that rainbow. Ah, okay. Okay. So in other words, somewhere along the line, we've got fixated, we've deviated from who we essentially are and got caught up in a certain wounded way of thinking. And so what the Enneagrams does is that identifies that wounded way of thinking so that we can heal ourselves. So, for instance, if I take um, the number one personality type, they they have this belief that in order for the world to be okay, for me to be present, everything has to be perfect. Well, we know that either everything is perfect or nothing is perfect, but the harder we work to make something perfect, if you've ever baked a cake and it's got to like really work because <laughs> you've got to have friends around that day or you, you're doing it for something special, that's the day it doesn't work. So, <laughs> so perfectionism then becomes a frustrating goal that a one personality type judges themselves by but constantly finds themselves not able to achieve. So that would be their wounding. So in realizing what they're doing to themselves, they can then let go of the need to judge this is right or wrong in order for to make it perfect and just be accepting of what is. Now I'm going to ask you to speak English and say that all over again. <laughs> okay. No, 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 it's fine. But, but, but no, the thing is you use, you, I, I realize that you're talking, you, you use words, I suppose there's a, there's a, 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 a vernacular for uh, talking Enneagram because uh, you're talking about wounding, you're talking about different type personalities and, and all of those kinds of things. But firstly, why is it important uh, to, to have a personality type? Because aren't we evolving every day depending on our environment and our, and our um, and evolution, for instance? Um, how, isn't it all liquid? Because what you may think is my personality type today may be affected by my environment and then I'm different tomorrow. Um, yes and no. Yes and no because we move to healthier aspects of ourselves and to less healthy aspects of ourselves on a day-to-day basis. So that would be your fluidity. But essentially, our wounding remains the same. So the eight personalities' belief on that, that the world is it, it's survival of the fittest. I've got to go out there and master everything or control everything in my to be okay is the deep-rooted belief system of an eight. And that's not going to change. Okay. Um, you, you mentioned an, a one earlier. Now you're mentioning an eight. So there are nine different personalities. All of us fit into between one and nine. We do. And then from that, there are various other um, types of new, So in other words, there are nine basic types. But within those types, there are other types, if you know what I mean. So it's so almost like... Um, there's an overlap. No, if you imagine a color orange, it could be slightly more yellow orange or it could be slightly more mm. red orange. You know, mm. there, there, there would be color variations, but essentially you are orange kind of thing, if I put it in colors. Yes, yes. I'm an artist. <laughs> I appreciate that because that's easier to understand. So, so is there a name for the, for the blends, if you like, uh, the, the, the light orange and, and the orange? Because you're not part of the nine, but you're a blend of, let's say, between <laughs> um, eight and nine. Well, if you are, say, 
the, the nine, let's take the nine. The nine's name, if you like, is the peacemaker. Okay. But the nine can be, so, so there's your laid back, lackadaisical sort of person can at the same time have a bit of a one personality type, the need to be right and the perfectionism. So, in other words, you, you can lean a little bit, if you're a nine, you can lean a little bit more to the, the one, or you can lean a little bit more to the eight, and that's going to affect how you are and act in, yeah, how you interact in the world, basically. Okay. Let's go back to the Enneagram. Um, because it's got the words gram in it, I think it's a drawing of some kind, right? Um, essentially, originally, Pythagoras, I think, and, and, and Plato used it. Yeah. And it was there just um, a glyph, a little symbol, a sort of uh, circle with, with nine different points inside it. Yeah. And they used to say that if you understood that, it was a complete, if you like, a map of all that is in the universe. Okay. Okay. Um, so they didn't really attach, words have only been attached to it much more recently. Okay, so so it's, it, I, I, understanding you means that it's been in, in existence for yonks and yonks and yonks, centuries and centuries, and what we are doing with it now is using it to identify these personalities so we can work with them and see what works, for instance, in the workplace and, and making sure that people are compatible. Absolutely correct, absolutely correct. Um, you know, I think it's only recently that people have started to um, to actually, well, psychologists got involved and so on. He's actually started to to apply more in-depth personality types to it. Before it was just a, a, a if you like, a, a kind of spiritual concept, if I can put it that way. Mm. Hmm. So t- take me through the numbers uh, before we even go to the blends. I feel like I'm talking about wine now. What time yeah. is it? <laughs> so take me through the numbers. Uh, the kind of personality one, um, what are we talking about? What's the type? Ones are the kind of people, it's right or it's wrong. It's black or it's white. Mm-hmm. They are perfectionists. They are truthful, they like detail, um, they kind of think that maybe everyone else hasn't got it quite as right as they have, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, you know, they, 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 um, they're very definite about what you should and shouldn't do. It's sometimes hard for one to understand that their way of doing may be different from someone else's way. And are they good leaders, number one? Um, they're good, detailed people in companies. So, in other words, they don't perhaps have always have the vision that some of the other numbers might have, mm-hmm. but they would be great implementers. Okay. So, number two. So, bookkeeping, accounting, ah, that kind of thing. teachers. Those guys. Yeah. Those guys. Okay. <laughs> All right. And then number two. They must be numbers people, though. Very, with very little uh, um, creative edge. I don't. I don't like to say no, anyone's got, but let's say if they were an artist, they would probably do realistic drawings in great detail. Ah, okay. All right. And number two? Number twos are sort of those people who rush up to you at a party. Oh, how are you? I haven't seen you. I'm missing you. They will do, <laughs> a, they spend a lot of time doing kind deeds for people. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but secretly hoping that people do those kind deeds back to them. <laughs> <laughs> Ones are your sort of earth mothers, your truly giving um, kind of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and they don't really want to be seen as having needs themselves. Um, mm. But like mm. any of us, they actually do. Yeah, yeah. And then threes are your um, goal-orientated um, they call them the chameleons of the world because they, they, they change according to the environment. But the ambition remains. So let's say if he was a hippie living in Nurdhuk, he might be making like the best bracelets around and pushing them into the marketplace, but he would dress like a hippie. In Joburg, <laughs> he'd be wearing Gucci. That's number three. I must look out for those. Yeah. yeah. Number four is your... True artists, they, they feel deeply and emotively, can often be quite melancholic and it doesn't worry them to be melancholic. They, mm-hmm. they, they, they feel isolated from the world, no one quite understands them. And so a lot of their life is looking for this person who will get them. Um, they're lovers of beauty, um, so their homes will always have beautiful objects in them. Are they happy though? Um, often not, but they're almost happy with being unhappy, if I can put it that way. <laughs> okay, okay. It doesn't worry them to be melancholic because in that state they're thinking of the beautiful song that they heard five years ago and that reminds them of this and that and, and so on, you know? Oh, wow. Okay. And your fives are, their motto would be knowledge is power. So the more I know about stuff, the more okay and competent I'll feel in the world. Okay. The more I master some body of knowledge. So they usually are introverts. They hate socializing. And um, you'll always find them, if, they, if you've managed to get them to a cocktail party, they're standing at the door wondering when they can leave. <laughs> um, they don't like interruptions because they're normally researching something. And they're great collectors, so you'll usually find them collecting something rather obscure, some obscure genre of music or um, certain old computer parts, stuff like that. They're very cerebral people. But don't they want to share that knowledge that they're collecting as well? If they're healthy, yes. If they're not healthy, they would see (laughs) it as casting pearls to swine. So these people aren't going to get it. It's like teaching Latin to mice. So why would I waste my valuable time, which I could be researching, giving this information out to these idiots? Would be, but that's a disintegrated. The integrated form of them would be yes, I take it and I share it with the world. Okay. And six? Six are your um, ambivalent types. So they're kind of, they scan the horizon. The issue is fear. So they're constantly scanning the horizon for what could possibly go wrong. And they're then looking to security figures or organizations to make them feel secure. So it could be a church group, it could be a corporation, mm. it could be the army, anything that where they, they or it could be a religious figure, something that they, some authority figure that they kind of look up to to make those decisions for them. Mm. Mm. Um, they are the sort of people that phone a friend was invented for. Um, before I do anything, let's phone seven people and find out what their opinions are. Oh, my goodness. But they're very engaging, and they can have a wonderful, self-depreciating sense of humor. Um, they sound kind as well. Sixes are very compassionate because they spend half their lives seeing it from both sides. Mm. So 
they can literally step in your shoes and see what it feels like for you to be going through whatever it is you're going through, as opposed to just seeing it from their point of view. And seven? Seven, you want to have a party, you invite a seven. Uh-huh. Seven are your, they're busy, 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 planning, planning, planning. So if a seven is going somewhere, let's say it's going to supper that night, you'll probably fit in three cocktail parties beforehand, and then after supper, a nightclub, you'll meet up with someone after that somewhere else. I mean, sevens just are on the go constantly. They're very upbeat. They, they um, can be very charismatic. Um, but it can be exhausting for everyone else who's trailing behind them, living with the seven. Um, they're the Peter Pans of the world. They never kind of grow up. They just want to have fun and party and do fun things. Oh, I know, I know lots of sevens, I must tell you. And they tend not to feel, they appear not to feel anything very deeply, because it's just, well, let's just avoid the feeling of pain with, like, another party, another mm. planning mm. event mm. or something, you mm. know. Mm. Okay, and then eight? Eights are your, they call them the challenger or the boss. Eights like to be in charge. So if you're running a company and you were to put an eight in a junior position, you're going to have one unhappy employee. Um, whereas sevens are the risk takers. Eights also take risks, but maybe it's a little bit more calculated. Mm-hmm. They, As I said to you earlier on, it's survival of the fittest in the eights minds. So they need to conquer others. They need to control others. Um, they can be incredibly warm-hearted and to people close to them can be generous, um, very lusty people. They go after what they want. Um, they're protective of those around them, um, particularly probably family members. Mm. But as they disintegrate, then they can become the bullies of the world. And then, of course, the peacemakers are number nine. And that's number nine. Number nines are delightful people. They're kind of half asleep most of the time. <laughs> and the biggest, and they often have these kind of sleepy, like lazy eyes. And, 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 and they sort of might be, they might be a sport or something, but they might, they're the, the laziest part of them is that part of them that refuses to show up for themselves. So they often don't stand up for themselves. They kind of go along with what everyone else is doing to the point that they don't even know what their opinion is, mm, mm. but they but they could be they're playful, they're fun to be with. You know that song, "Don't Worry, Be Happy." That was made for nine. <laughs> now, I, and I've, it's, it's just been such a joy, and I also wanted to ask you about scientific proof of all of this. But I think this was just a teaser for you to introduce us to just the enneagram idea and how it works and what sort of results one may get. And I think we'll have to come back and just talk about it in detail. And hopefully people can go to your website as well and read a bit more about it and engage with you a bit more about it, right? Sure. I've got a workshop coming up this Saturday. It could be the last one for the year. Okay. And then I start again in February next year. Okay. Where, where it's, it's on your website, the workshop. It will be under, yes, under angat.coza. And then um, it will be under Enneagram's workshops. In, okay, fantastic. Thank you so, so much. Are, are you on Facebook at all? Um, yes, um, I've got, if you go to Angad on Facebook, A-W-N-G-A-W-D-N-O-E, you'll see underneath my, my, I have a sort of Facebook Enneagram page linked to my Facebook. 
lovely. Thank you so much for introducing us to uh, Enneagram. And we'll talk Can again soon. Can I ask soon. you a question, Shadow? Yes, uh, we're running out of time, but yes, if it's a quick one. So which one do you think you are? <laughs> <laughs> that will have to wait for another conversation. Unless, <laughs> unless, you, can, uh, unless you tell me who you think I am. <laughs> on radio. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Anne. Okay. You Pleasure. take care. You take care now. Ooh, Bye-bye. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so go to ANGAD, A-N-N-G-A-D-D dot C-O dot Z-A, and that's where you'll find more information on the Enneagram. But it is now, oh, we'll take a break and come back with our children's story.